I sense your concern. I, um, I was reflecting and thinking about, and it'll be obvious why in a minute when we get to the Scripture, I was thinking about weddings and my experience uh, doing weddings over the years. And, and I realized that, that I've been cheated because when I was preparing for ministry as, as the son of a, of a pastor and, and who knows not only colleagues in ministry but listened to the stories that my father and some of his colleagues at the time would tell, that um, weddings provided the most interesting and fascinating preacher stories. That, you know, most pastors, if you talk to them, and they've done a number of weddings over the years, have some crazy stories of some things they've seen. I really don't. All my weddings have been normal and celebratory. and ha- I mean, they're boring. And... Um, <laughs> And I mean, I've had small things here, but nothing, nothing crazy, nothing, nothing, you know, that, that's going to kind of be the, the attention getter for stories. And I was, I was feeling a little cheated about that. So I started going to read some other stories of pastors and experiences and weddings. And that kind of led me to a, uh, an article about some of the craziest wedding traditions around the globe. So these weren't necessarily pastor stories, but these are traditions that other cultures and ways that they prepare or celebrate weddings. And I found it fascinating. Now, these are the extreme ones that I'm picking out. But, for instance, one of the things that in our culture that, that brides sometimes will do, and the kind of one of the, I don't want to say traps, but, but, but realities of being, being a bride is that sometimes brides will spend months before their wedding um, trying to watch what they eat and lose weight and, and try to be you know, as perfect as they can um, by our cultural definition, which is a little skewed, um, of, of, for, for their wedding day. In uh, Mauritania, which is uh, in south, northwest Africa, it's on the coast, the brides also have a months of preparation before their wedding. Except the goal in Mauritania is for the bride to put on as much weight as she can before the wedding. I'm not kidding because their culture believes that curves and stretch marks and that way is a sign of, of, of well, um, well-being, of wealth, of success. So they will send brides, and I'm not making this up, to fat farms, but not to lose weight, to gain weight. Now, how many of you go, that would have been a lot easier? Eating up to 16,000 calories a day. 16. Now you think about four bodybuilders are going to, that feeds four bodybuilders a day. That's not even like the normal. That's like eight people a day, you know, normal calories just to gain weight. And I thought, wow, that is, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I've, I've never heard that and certainly very countercultural to us. So I started reading some more. There is um, Tijia in southwest China in a tradition that goes back thousands of years, about um, a little over a month before the wedding, the bride starts to cry every day. Most of you think that's usually what happens after the wedding. But um, the bride will start to cry every day. Ten days after the, the, this period of crying starts, the, the mother joins. Ten days after that, the grandmother joins, and then the sisters and aunts. And every day up to the wedding, they cry for a designated hour each evening. And while the bride does, she, she, chants, she starts chanting these words, just random words that become a wedding prayer. And it's meant to be an expression of joy. 
I don't know why, but it's meant to be an expression of joy. So that's a tradition I've never seen. In Scotland, the bride gets, there's a tradition that goes back to the bride getting tarred and feathered. Not, not kidding. That they would, um, the guests, they would, they would cover the bride in molasses, ash, feathers, flour, and way more disgusting things. And um, they would cover it, and it was meant to scare off evil spirits. Then they would tie the bride to a tree. <laughs> Didn't say if they left her there, they would just tie her to a tree. Um, in Germany, now this is a tradition, they, the, um, the guests, the wedding guests, will break um, porcelain or ceramic dishware. Some of you are not in your head. You've heard this one. I've never heard this one. We'll break ceramic and porcelain dishware, and at the end of the wedding, it is the bride and groom's responsibility to clean up. It's their first chore together, and if they can handle that without fighting, it's believed they can handle whatever obstacles will come their way. So uh, how many of you would love to be cleaning up after your guests at a wedding? All right, a couple more. Um, in... Uh, Oh, one of my favorite, in the Marquesas Islands, French Polynesia, the, um, in the Pacific, they have a tradition where after the wedding, the, the bride's guests, the bride's side of the family and guests, lay face down in the dirt, and the bride and groom walk over them like a rug. <laughs> How many of you would like to go to a wedding and you get to be the floor mat? All right, and then the strangest one, the strangest one that I read, um, out of France, I have never, ever heard this one before, but that after a wedding, when the bride and groom are away for a little while, um, the, the party, if you will, all the leftovers are poured together, everything's poured together, and the bride and groom have to drink, they have to take a swap, and it is served out of a toilet. It's called chamber pot stew. Now, the tradition has morphed. Now it's chocolate or wine, and I'm sure it's much more sanitary. I don't know, and I didn't go to do the full research as to how that ever became a thing. But that was, so leave you on a high note there. Um, so, you know, if you thought the five-second rule was kind of gross, how about that one? Um, a lot of traditions. The whole point is I started to think about traditions, and these are the extreme nutty ones, but, but we have wedding traditions. We have things that we do around the celebration of a wedding that can be very um, intimate and, and um, small, or it can be large and elaborate, and, and certainly you, like I, have probably seen a lot of um, examples of that. Well, we're turning to a wedding story today. And that's kind of how, how I got on that weird train of thought. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is Jesus' first miracle. It's the miracle of the, of the wedding feast. It's the miracle of, of water to wine. And um, probably, at least at some level, familiar to you. Uh, let's, let's read the text. Beginning John chapter 2. Read the story at verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. 
So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you save the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Brothers and sisters, may God add his blessing here to the reading of word. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that you would give us understanding, insight into this, maybe even mundane miracle, to understand how profound it is and what it means for us. We ask your blessings on these moments and the words that are spoken here. We pray it in Christ Jesus. Amen. So it is, um, it's a simple setup. The story is not complex. Jesus, Mary, the disciples, those early disciples, they're at a wedding. And um, they run out of the wine. And Jesus, or Mary turns to Jesus and says, do something. Now that's an interesting thing she does. And, and I did some reading. Scholars don't really know what Mary expected Jesus to do. He hadn't done any miracles yet. Really hadn't begun much of his public ministry at all beyond his baptism so did she expect him to do a miracle, or did she expect him to get some friends together and go out and get some wine? Um, don't really know. But she knew Jesus could do something. And, and he responds to her, and, and he says kind of those what sounds really harsh. You know, woman, why, why do you involve me? You know, why, why do you come to me? It's, it's kind of an idiom. I think it sounds harsher than, than it would have been communicated. It's, it's kind of just a way of, of saying... Um, What's, why, why does this matter to us? In fact, the way we might say it today is, uh, the, the, the phrase I thought of was you know, the, the, the common statement that we'll make, you know, failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine, right? And, and so that's, I think, what Jesus is kind of saying is like, you know, this isn't, this isn't my rodeo, if you will. You know, not my circus, not my monkeys kind of thing. And, um, but... But it's interesting that in spite of that kind of initial reaction, uh, Jesus acts. He, he sees an opportunity here. And I think this is where wedding traditions are important. This is, this is where knowing a little bit, a, a Jewish wedding tradition was an elaborate celebration. That was the culmination of what sometimes could be a year-long time of preparation. From the time a, a wedding was very often arranged... Uh, there, was, there was a process, and I'm, I'm not going to go into detail because it's, it's very complex, but there was a, com- there was a, a process of, of contract negotiations between the bride's father and the groom and, and the groom's family. And, and so this could sometimes take, take months. And then there was the process of getting everything ready in the bridal suite and, and the, the honeymoon suite, if you will, and, and making sure. And, and you couldn't move forward with the wedding till the, the bride's father or the groom's father... The, until the contract was finished and the groom's father said everything's been made ready. So there's this long time of preparation. And then the wedding celebration itself. You know, we think of, of, of wedding receptions as, as an evening. These could sometimes be seven days of celebration. And so 
because there was so much put into this and a wedding was such an important um, communal event and, and col- of cultural and certainly spiritual significance, what we're dealing with here is a major social catastrophe. It's not a catastrophe on life and death kind of thing. Obviously, we know that. But, but it's a big deal. And this is going to be very embarrassing for somebody. And so, and most likely, the, the groom. And that's important to know when we begin to, to ask ourselves, what is it that prompts Jesus to step in here? Because at the heart of, of Jesus' miracles, I think, are are two things. One, Jesus' miracles strengthen faith. Jesus performs miracles not to convince necessarily, because most often those who, who, who are impacted are those who have uh, a level of faith, but it, but it strengthens that. We see that in this story at the very end. It says that the disciples, those who had already made a commitment to follow him, they're already starting this journey. It says that at the, after this miracle, they believed. And throughout their, their time with Jesus, their, that faith is going to be strengthened along the way. It's, you know, it's, it's, not, always a, it's not a one-step process, faith. It's not, it's not a matter of, well, we believe and now we're all the way there. We grow and we develop and, and our, our faith gets strengthened by our experiences and how we see God work. And that's what miracles serve for. They, rarely is, is Jesus trying to convince you of anything, but he's trying to empower and strengthen the faith of those who believe. So, so we see that. So that's certainly at the heart of a miracle and many of Jesus' miracles. But, but here's, the, here's the other thing. Jesus performed miracles because he, because he cared. Because he cared. Because this mattered to somebody. Now, when we, we look at this miracle, is, is it on par with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead or, or resurrecting the, the, the girl or healing lepers or giving sight to the blind, even feeding 5,000. No, on a social impact, on an individual impact, this, this isn't the same thing. You know, we would certainly count those. We would rank those as far more significant. But, but this is important for us to grasp because I've said to you before that, that we need to remember that if it matters to us, it matters to God. If it, if it matters to us, it may not be the most earth-shattering need. It, it may not be the most, you know, in, in scale of what others are going through. Sometimes, sometimes we dismiss our, our struggles because they're not as significant as what others are going through. Now, perspective is always important. Perspective is always valuable. It helps us to kind of keep a balance. But, but not to the point where we dismiss our struggles, yeah, my struggles may not be yours. Your struggles may not be mine. But they're yours. Mine are mine. And they matter. They matter to me. And, and they matter to God. And so Jesus steps in. And, and he, he takes action. And that's significant for us. But the other thing, and I think even the, most, the more profound connection for me, was that this gives us a wonderful picture of what God's grace does. The, the abundance and the, and the power of God's grace. The, the verse, and, and I've said, the verse that really that I, that I tend to fixate on in this was that comment that the, that the master of the banquet says to the, to the bridegroom. He doesn't know Jesus has done this miracle. He just knows that this wine's come out that he didn't know about. And, and he says, you know, you did this backwards. 
He said, most of the time it's the best wine first, then when people don't care as much, it's the, it's the less quality. But he said, but this, this, this is the best. This is the best. And I started to think about that's, that's what Jesus does. When Jesus touches something, when he changes something, the bad becomes good, the good becomes better, the better becomes best. That's the, the progression that God works in our lives. It, it's, it's an opposite story. Uh, but there was a, a man by the name of Louis Enricht. In 1916, Louis Enricht proclaimed, he was, a, he was an inventor, or self-described inventor, and he said he had found a way to turn water into gasoline. And so he had a demonstration. Uh, Henry Ford was there. Other investors were there. And, and he took this water and he put something in it. It was top secret. And the water turned green. And he told them, put it in your engines. And they did. And their engines ran. And everybody was amazed. And people started lining up to invest in this new additive that would turn ordinary water into this valuable source. Keep in mind, now we're in World War I, and, and so this is, this is incredible. Well, what they didn't realize is that the engines would run for a little while, and then they would be destroyed. It would literally, what he had done is he had taken some, I believe it was acetate, and he'd added it to the water, and it discolored it, and it would allow an engine to run for a little while. And then it destroyed the engine. He was a scam artist. He was a scam. There was no... What he had actually done is made the water less valuable because it wasn't good for drinking. It wasn't good for anything else at that point. He had, he had corrupted what it was, not really made anything better. He ended up going to prison years later for, for some of his scams. Jesus has an, an opposite impact on our lives. When, when, Jesus, when, we get, when God's grace gets a hold of us, when, when, when God steps into our lives, we become different. We become changed from something that is good, and water is good, to something that is not even better, but it's, but it's best. God begins to work and to change us uh, from the inside out. God begins to pour his love into us. It's an act of God's, God's infinite love. It, 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 it's, it's God's nature. Uh, I've, I've, over the years, uh, talked with, with creative folks in, in all kinds of uh, artistic endeavors. I mean, we're creative in a lot of different ways, but I'm thinking of the more, more traditional ways that people um, that paint or people that, that write and do music and, and people that create poetry. And, and I, had, I had somebody once say to me, they were a painter, and they were, they were showing me some of their works, and... and um, and I said, well, you must really enjoy it. And I'll never forget. They said, well, it's not so much that I enjoy it, not that he didn't. He said, but I have to do this. I have to do this. There's something in me that this is, this is, this is my nature, and this is how I express myself, and this is how I, I get this, this, this. It builds up inside of me. And in fact, he, he said something along the lines. I don't know how the words. He said, if I don't paint, I'll go crazy. Because he just had this inside of him that he just had to express and, and he had to get out. And I think of some of you who, who are painters and, and whether that, that characterizes how you feel. But, but, I, but I thought about that. God's nature is love. 
I mean, that, that's, that's who he is. God is love. It's one of the most simple yet profound verses in scriptures. God's nature is to take things and to express his love through the way that he touches and changes. And when we open ourselves to that grace, God begins to ch- touch and change us. And our lives become better. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author, talked in his book. He wrote a book called My Conversion. And he said that when God got a hold of his life, when he gave his life to Christ, all of a sudden things changed for him. And he said the things that that he saw as evil, he now saw as good and valuable and beautiful. And the things that he thought were good, he now saw as evil. And and he talked about the fact that his life had been spent in debauchery and and selfishness and greed and, and looking out for himself. And all of a sudden, when Christ got a hold of his life, all of a sudden, he didn't want those things anymore. Those things that had corrupted him, those things that had, had devalued him, he didn't, he didn't desire them anymore. He wanted things now that honored God. And when we begin to do that, when, when we allow God to begin to change us, we become better. And the better becomes best, the best that we can be. We're not perfect. We don't get it right all the time. We still fall prey to sin. But we see that I'm I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced of this with every ounce of my being that when Jesus gets a hold of us, our lives become better. Not always easier. We've talked about that, but it becomes better. Our relationships become better. Why? Because all of a sudden we begin to take on the character of Jesus. The character of Jesus is always a selfless character. We begin to look to the interests of others before ourselves. Tell me that doesn't improve relationships. Tell me that if you are invested in a relationship where your concern is the well-being of another person before your own well-being, tell me that relationship won't be better. I challenge you to do that. I believe that our perspective gets better because we begin to see the hand of God at work. And all of a sudden we see God in places that we didn't see God before. We see see goodness in places we didn't see it before. Not that we deny the difficulties and, the, and, and there's evil in the world, but we begin to see God in, in new ways. Our perspective becomes changed. Our countenance, our joy becomes different because our joy isn't tied to the things of this world. Jesus says that's where moth and rust destroy. It's not about our bank accounts. It's not about our car. It's not about the size of our house. It's not about the position or the nameplate on our desk or whatever, all those things. All those things are fine. But that's not what defines our worth and our value. Everything becomes better because we become best. Because of Christ at work within us. Who doesn't want that in their life? I invite you, I challenge you to open your hearts to the one who creates good out of mediocre, who creates better out of good, creates best out of better. Allow God to begin that journey in your life. That's, that's what I see when I read this miracle story. Yeah, it's, it's not resurrecting the dead. It's not feeding 5,000. But it is no less profound. Because it gives us a glimpse at what God does. Let God begin to do that in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that you, you do begin to, to change us and, and work within us and, and move us to being the very best that we can be created in the likeness of, of you and in the, the, empowered by the Spirit of Christ so that we'd see life, experience life, engage life differently because of our experience of grace and the profound power of the way you transform everything that you touch. Lord, we give you glory. We give you praise. 
And we lift this prayer in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.